This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. We kick it off today with the story we've been following, and that is the vote yesterday in the House of Commons accusing China of genocide against its Uyghur Muslim population. The vote was 266 to zero. But very notably, Justin Trudeau and his cabinet abstaining from the vote. That was made official by the Foreign Affairs Minister, Mark Garneau. Here's what that sounded like yesterday. Mr. Speaker, I abstained on behalf of the Government of Canada. Mr. Garneau, abstention, abstention. Mr. Hardy. What's that about? Okay, let's check in now with Terry Glavin, columnist at the National Post and the writer at McLean's Magazine. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Terry, thanks a lot for coming on. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for doing this. Did this go according to the script that you expected yesterday with the Trudeau and his cabinet abstaining from this vote? Is that what you expected to happen? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, that's how they roll. I don't think there's any mystery that we should uh, attach to that uh, position. You know, that's that's the way the Trudeau, Trudeau government rolls. They will not do anything to upset uh, the uh, ruling elites in Beijing. They will not do anything to upset the Canada-China Business Council. And, uh, you know, they say, oh, well, it's because of the two mics. Well, what was the excuse before the two mics? You know, and then sometimes you hear, well, you know, we don't want to upset the, the, the Chinese government because we rely on them for PPEs and the COVID. Well, what was our excuse before that was an issue? There's absolutely no change in this particular government's posture as respect, in respect of, of Beijing. It has behaved from the moment it was elected as though it were the political wing of the Canada-China Business Council, nothing has changed. I, I guess the I guess the, the fate of the two Michaels, as, as you mentioned, Terry, seems to be the most commonly asserted explanation for this and, and the reason that Trudeau is being so, so cautious. They don't want to antagonize the Chinese regime when we're trying to get our people back here. But, I mean, at the end of the day, you still had dozens and dozens of Liberal MP backbenchers voted in favor of this motion, and the Chinese government seems to be very unhappy about it. So I wonder if, if, they're, if, they, if they're trying not to antagonize the Chinese, have they, have they succeeded? Well, you've got to ask yourself, I mean, that vote occurred on the 806th day of the abduction and imprisonment of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spava. Um, now, what, what possible excuse is available to the federal cabinet? In, I, I mean, the, 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 there's nothing that the federal government has done that in any way uh, affects an early, quick, just release of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spaver. They are still in jail. Yeah. And, uh, you know, 
the what is what the federal government made a big show last week of um, what is effect effectively a petition that they've managed to get a few dozen UN member states states to sign to the effect that kidnapping is bad. Well, we already know kidnapping is bad. There's, uh, I guess it was 1978, the United UN has a, already, you know, a resolution opposing kidnapping and hostage diplomacy and so on. Um, there's nothing happening here. The, the, and I, I find it interesting that we continue to refer to this as a non-binding uh, motion, right? Right, right. Um, well, it's only non-binding if the Trudeau cabinet chooses to make it non-binding sure you know i think we as there's an what's interesting for me because this is sort of the stuff that i cover is that it's one of those rare occasions when you know canada's a liberal democracy and this is one of those rare occasions when our elected representatives the house of commons has actually had the audacity the impertinence to intrude upon um, international trade and sort of foreign policy, as we call it. Yeah. And I think this is something that we, we, we should be, uh, we certainly shouldn't be ashamed of it. I think, okay. uh, you know, we've got all, all the parties in the House of Commons, the Bloc, the NDP, the Greens, uh, the Conservatives, most of the Liberals. Uh, you've got 180 human rights organizations. You've got all of the Hong Konger, Tibetan, Xinjiang, uh, 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 you know, diaspora organizations uh, on one side, and you've got uh, the Trudeau cabinet on the other. Well, you know, uh, it is what it is. Spe- and, speaking uh, speaking of the speaking of the conservatives, Terry, let me play this for you. I'm interested in the politics on this and, and your take on it. I think that the conservatives have scored some points here against Trudeau over this file. Let me uh, play this here for you. This is uh, Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole after the vote yesterday. Justin Trudeau and his cabinet refused to vote. In fact, Mr. Trudeau and most of his team did not even show up. Their coordinated absence speaks volumes. It is shameful that Justin Trudeau and the Liberal government continue to refuse to call the horrific conduct by the Chinese Communist Party what it is, a genocide. Okay, Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole speaking yesterday. Uh, If you take a look at sort of the voting patterns in our country, Terry, I think the pollsters would tell you that foreign affairs issues are typically not kind of a top 10, top of mind uh, issue for most people heading to the ballot box. But I wonder if uh, O'Toole and the Conservatives, have put they've laid a glove on Trudeau here, I think. Your thoughts? Well, I've never subscribed to that, uh, that uh, proposition. Certainly if we, you know, that foreign policy doesn't matter to Canadians. Certainly if we, if we just confine a whole bunch of stuff in, in the box of foreign policy, you know, that strange area of federal, of federal jurisdiction that we're supposed to leave to the experts. Yeah, who, who would be interested in that stuff? You know, I mean, this is my job. I, this is my beat. I cover this stuff. I'm not interested in it. But when you look at Canada as a multicultural country, as a country that's founded on principles of universal human rights, that is, you know, relies very heavily on trade, far, far more so than, uh, than most countries do, far more than the United States, uh, all of these issues that are meaningful to Canadians, um, 
we you know we ha- we really have to stop sort of segregating them off in this this, this private sphere uh, of nerds you know that can, are allowed to talk about foreign policy. That's what's interesting about this to me. And me, by the way, I mean, yeah. I, not to you know, I don't want to slag off Aaron O'Toole. Fair play to him for what he's done here. But the, you know, the the motion, all the motion says is that the government of China has engaged in actions consistent with the UN def- definition of genocide. That's all. I mean, it is absolutely unimpeachable. Yeah, uh, completely undeniable. But you know. The mystery here, I think there's not really much of a mystery as to why the Trudeau government behaves in this way with respect to China. It's bred in the bone with these people. It's multi-generational. They grew up in that culture. The Crechens, the Demeray family, SNC-Lavalin, the Power Corporation. As I say, you know, it's, if, you, if you understand the Trudeau liberals as the political wing of the Canada-China Business Council, None of this will be mysterious to you. And you don't have to, you know, engage in conspiracy theories about, oh, gosh, maybe they, you know, the Chinese have got some tapes or they've got some increment, something incriminating about Trudeau. It's just the way they roll. Let me ask you real quickly about uh, Trudeau and and the. It's less than two years ago we had the report out on uh, Canadian uh, missing women, missing Indigenous women and girls that accused Canada of genocide, which uh, Trudeau said he accepted that finding. Here is Trudeau in 2019 on that point. We accept the findings of the commissioners uh, that it was genocide. Many people have talked about uh, cultural genocide, used very strong words for it, and I think there are, uh, there are very strong words necessary. The National Inquiry formally presented their final report in which they found that the tragic violence that Indigenous women and girls have experienced amounts to genocide. Okay, Terry, your thoughts with just a minute here, with Trudeau saying, not willing to point an accusatory finger at at Canada for genocide and its treatment of our our indigenous people, but hesitant to do the same thing to China. Your thoughts? Well, I rest my case. (laughs) I I think that that kind of says it. I mean, um, if, if, if we are to be so nitpicky and assiduous about the definition of genocide in this case, which is on its face, obvious and plain to anyone who will look at it. But uh, in the case of, you know, the horrible predicament that indigenous women have been facing in Canada for some years now, to call that a genocide... Yeah, I mean, it's more than just hypocrisy. It's more than just, uh, you know, inconsistency. This government will be groovy and hip and woke so long as there's absolutely no cost whatsoever uh, to its friends in uh, the Power Corporation and SNC-Lavalin and CNOC and the rest. Okay. Um, but when, actually, when it actually matters, and when it matters to Canadians, and when there's, there, there's, there's consensus across the board that the very least we should do in our approach to China is base it on the real world. And in the real world, the government of China has engaged in actions consistent with the UN uh, definition of genocide. We'll have to leave it, we'll have to leave it there. In that context. Terry, we'll have to leave it there. It's always great to have you on. Thank you for coming on today. Okay, buddy.
All right, welcome back to the show. Here we go now with those highly contagious COVID variants showing up in BC schools, at least seven schools in the Fraser Health region reporting cases of the UK variant of COVID-19. More than 300 students and staff self-isolating in Surrey. Some schools hit particularly hard, notably Woodward Hill Elementary School in Surrey. Nearly 40 people in self-isolation and rapid testing being done there. In uh, those cases, teachers at the at school this morning, we are hearing a staging a very conspicuous protest. Most of the teachers today dressing all in red as they showed up for class today uh, in an effort to raise awareness about the seriousness of the issue and to show support for other schools uh, that have got variants of COVID-19. Have a listen to this here now. This is Dr. Emily Broadkin, who is the Director of Infection Prevention in the Fraser Health Region, talking about the virus in schools. So I actually think that the um, safety measures that are present in the school are robust and provided they are followed, um, then the schools actually are well protected against transmission of uh, people who come to school with infection. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Shirley Bond. She is the interim leader of the BC Liberal Party, uh, MLA for Prince George Valmont. I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Hi, thanks for coming on. Hi, Mike. Happy to be with you this morning. Yeah, these are very troubling developments when we hear about these COVID variants showing up in schools. What are your concerns and what, what, do, you, what do you think the government should be doing? Well, we've been clear for months now that uh, we think that since British Columbia has uh, a million rapid tests sitting unused in a warehouse, uh, we, we expect those to be used. And, you know, Mike, you and I have had this conversation for months now. And over and over again, whether it's teachers, whether it's long-term care workers, whether it's uh, those who advocate on behalf of the frail elderly, the view is that if we have a million rapid tests, why aren't we using them? And I think that's, that's one of the issues. Secondly, we look at, again, uh, you know, the inconsistency. If you are a student in grade in a middle school, you are required to wear a mask, but students in elementary school in the same grade, six and seven, are not. So, again, you know, this is about consistency. Uh, parents yeah. want to know that students are safe and teachers and staff want to be sure that their workplace is safe. Okay, let me ask you about the rapid testing, because I think that's interesting. We have seen some limited use of these rapid-tested schools with some of these uh, variant outbreaks, notably at the school that I just mentioned, Woodward Hill Elementary. Uh, but you would like to see it more widely applied. Like, how, how do you think the rapid test should be used? Like, test everybody? Test every kid? or? Well, work? certainly I think that everyone that's connected to a class that has a COVID-19 variant exposure, uh, yeah. probably a good use of a rapid test to quickly yeah. identify whether there are mo- more cases. And Mike, one of the things that I think that, you know, I, I've thought a lot about this lately, about the, the degree of stress and uncertainty. And a recent, uh, you know, a recent uh, commentary uh, looked at how frontline workers are feeling about their jobs and whether it's teachers who are obviously frontline workers or uh, care providers or whether it's paramedics or doctors, many of them are now looking at whether or not they want to stay in that profession post-pandemic. People are burnt out. There are stressful situations. And, you know, when we think about it, let's do everything we possibly can to reduce stress and provide more certainty in those workplaces. And, and from a practical perspective, you know, to think that there is an additional tool called a rapid test, over a million of them sitting in a warehouse 
while we continue to see uh, additional variant exposures, and, and we don't understand uh, necessarily what that looks like, uh, it just doesn't make sense. And, and, you know, Premier Horgan needs to step up and recognize that there is considerable stress and concern about people's workplaces, about parents, uh, and sending their kids to school. So use the rapid test. It seems pretty straightforward. Okay, okay well, John Horgan has preferred, I guess, to let Bonnie Henry take the lead on this. Are you saying that he should step in and overrule her? Well, I think, you know, ultimately the government is accountable and the public health officer provides advice to the government. Um, You know, so I think there is a role for the premier to demonstrate leadership. And first of all, he should certainly understand and know exactly what's going on. We've just seen a situation where, you know, Premier Horgan said he didn't have details about the the potential uh, plan for vaccination in British Columbia. He should know that. And today we discover that indeed there are details and in fact they've been leaked. So, you know, it is time for Premier Horgan to stand up and take leadership. And that's on a daily basis, not a infrequent, uh, you know, press conference when it seems to be when there's more good news than challenging questions. Okay, I think you touched on something that's top of mind for a lot of people, and that's when or when am I going to get the vaccine? When is my loved one going to get mm-hmm. the shot? And as you mentioned, Premier John Horgan last week, uh, said there were didn't have a lot of details to share with British Columbians. He said he understands the anxiety, he understands the frustration, he understands people want the information, but he didn't have any information to share with them when it came to a detailed rollout of a mass vaccine pro, uh, pro, uh, program. Then we see, as you mentioned, this leaked uh, document uh, given to Vaughn Palmer at the Vancouver Sun with what looks like a very detailed plan in the Fraser Health Authority uh, to get max vaccines clinics up and running starting on April 6th. So what is your message on that this morning? Like full disclosure to to people, tell people what's going on? Well, again, you know, we've had this conversation multiple times. British Columbians deserve as much information as possible. And for the Premier to suggest that, you know, know, and I think his comment was something to the effect that it's not a lack of government giving the information, it's about a lack of information. We now know that wasn't true. Because Fraser Health has leaked a document, uh, a document has leaked out that said, in fact, this is what the plan is. We're going to start to see vaccination starting on a particular date, and here's how it's going to happen, and people might get a postcard in the mail. The Premier needs to know explicitly what is happening, and he needs to give British Columbians that information. And it goes back to that that comment that was made about, you know, we don't want to uh, have British Columbians uh, feel hysterical or cause hysteria. British Columbians have stepped up and done, most, of, most British Columbians have done everything that was asked to them of Uh, and more. It's time for the government to do more. And that starts at the top. That starts with Premier Horgan taking responsibility for the the lack of consistent provision of information, for details, for data. And most of all, Mike, you're right. If you are a family right now that has someone in their lives that is 80 years old or over, you have no idea when they're going to get vaccinated, much less the second shot. So of course that's an issue. And it's time that we saw the details You know, they have uh, Dr. Penny Ballam in charge. Put her in front of British Columbians and lay out the plan. Okay, the government relying, though, on the feds to secure the vaccine and do the initial distribution across the country. Is BC in kind of a tough, difficult position when they're relying on another level of government here to get us the vaccine? Well, let's be clear. Uh, When the vaccine arrives, and it will, and you are right, that is a variable, and we can't hold the government, uh, BC government, to account for that. 
But don't most British Columbians believe that after a year there should be a plan in place for when that vaccine arrives? It's clear that there is a scramble going on to put together a plan. Absolutely understand that the arrival of vaccine is a variable beyond the control of this premier. But what isn't beyond his control is ensuring they've had a year to put a plan in place. Now we find details dribbling out. We're not sure who's going to get what when. So, yes, the vaccine will arrive. But when it arrives, British Columbians expect there to be a solid, credible, fulsome plan in place. There's been a year to do that. So the arrival of the vaccine is one variable, but there should be a plan uh, regardless of when that vaccine arrives. Okay, speaking of Shirley Bond, uh, leader of the BC Liberal Party, final question for you, just going back to the situation with the COVID variants in schools. Your point on the masks, are you saying that a mask mandate should be expanded in, in schools? It should be mandatory in all grades? or What I'm saying is that the 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 province should sit down with teachers and talk about the concerns about the variation of how masks are used in the school system. And I don't think that's a, a tough request. I think that, you know, teachers are concerned that, you know, if middle school students are required to wear them and yet in elementary school the same grades are not, that's a que- that's a fair question. And the VCTF continues to ask that question. I think that that it's uh, pretty simple and straightforward. The government needs to sit down, talk that through with the BCTF, and and come to some sort of resolution. And, and Mike, if I might, I I just hope you wouldn't mind. If today is Seniors uh, Care Providers Day in British Columbia, and we know how difficult these days have been for people working in long-term care, so I just want to make sure we get a chance to say thank you to those people who have worked so hard on the front lines through devastating circumstances and situations, and and, uh, we want to recognize them today and, and uh, d- you know, express our gratitude to those those workers and all those people on the front lines. Great. I'm glad you got an opportunity to do that, and uh, I'll second that, that motion. Thank you for coming on today. I appreciate Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Date at any time. Thanks. Uh, all right. Welcome back to the show. Quick programming note for you. Coming up at the top of this hour, we'll talk about the standoff between Australia and Facebook. Have you been following that one? Facebook, well, not after Australia I was considering those new laws on news content on social media sites, primarily Facebook and Google, Australia is set to charge a link tax, as it came to be known, for posting news content on Facebook. Oh, Facebook did not like that one bit. They imposed a news blackout down under. So in Australia, this lasted for an entire week. You could not get news content or news links on Facebook in Australia. Also caused a lot of problems for Australian news sites 
uh, trying to get their information out to the rest of the world. That went on for about a week. The breaking news at this hour on that one is Facebook has now refriended Australia. So they've done a deal. The government has backed down somewhat on its proposed law there in Down Under in Australia. Facebook now allowed to share that news content once again. So at the top of this hour, we got a great guest for you on that coming up. And so make sure you stay tuned for that. But first, let's talk about rating your landlord. Now, a lot of people know you can go online and you can rate your university professor. Uh, you can rate your Airbnb host. You can do lots of reviews online. How about rating your landlord well there is a new website that allows you to do just that it's called the good neighbor website let's check in with the founder now drew mins and i'm very pleased to welcome him to the show hey drew hey how are you i'm doing great thanks a lot for coming on this is interesting uh, website you've developed can you tell me how you came up with this idea and what can people do on this site if they if they visit the site what will they see sure yeah um so came up with the site because I mean, sure. I'm sure, like many before me, I had some unique, interesting, and frustrating experiences with renting, um, and I really recognize that you know there is kind of a power imbalance where typically landlords will ask you for many things like credit checks, um, pay stubs, any kind of letters of employment, um, and references before you move into a place. Yet the renter doesn't really have much in terms of being able to actually kind of step in and check to make sure that the place is, is valuable for their needs. Okay, you were a long-time so, renter. Did you have, you had some uh, problematic landlords yourself in the past? I have had some problematic landlords, yeah. I lived above a, lived above a restaurant at one point, and um, there was um, a time that they decided to leave the gas on in the restaurant above us. So it wasn't really the landlord, it was more the restaurant that was below us. Um, and we had to evacuate till about 4 o'clock in the morning. Okay, and you and figured it, that was yeah. the landlord's fault? No, sorry, it was the restaurant's fault. However, um, the people that had lived in the building, our neighbors, had mentioned that it wasn't the first time it happened. So um, it's one of those things that was like, hey, I wish I kind of knew ahead of time what I was getting into. Right, right. So this just gives people some more information before they decide to sign a lease and move in. You got it, yeah. Okay. And I think, I think that um, a lot of people tend to forget that you know, people that are renting are consumers, and they tend to spend quite a significant amount of their income um, on renting. So while we, like you mentioned there, we review a lot of other assist, like um, platforms and products out there as well. Yeah. Why is there nothing for some, for a tool that, you know, represents how we spend that massive income? Okay. So when you go on the good neighbors website, what, what, what can people expect to see there? Yeah. You go on the website, um, you can, there's a search field um, and there's also a map view as well, where you can type in the name of an, of the landlord that maybe you, um, would potentially be moving and working with or the address to a place you'd like to investigate okay. and um, see if somebody has posted a review about their experience there. If not, if you also want to share your experience to help somebody in the future, you can do so and you can just add in those details. Okay. Does it work in British Columbia? It does. Yeah. So I am um, located in Hamilton, Ontario. Right. So initially it was Toronto centric because that's where, you know, it's easy to get that audience where I am. Um, but it's actually open for North America. So anybody in North America can add an address right now. Okay, so how do you know if the information is is legit? Like, or how do you know if maybe you've got a, a tenant on there who's just got an axe to grind uh, against the landlord? Like, can the landlord log on and, and, and post a, like a counter review? 
Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. We, we, so they do have the ability to provide um, another review of their own on, on their own. It'll be on their own listing, of course. Um, in the future, we're looking at kind of adding, you know, commenting so they could respond to that as well. But also in the, um, if something is problematic on there, we also have a system just to remove it. If it's someone finds they want to report it to us. Okay. How many people are using the site? Like the site's pretty new, right? Yeah. It came out last month. Um, in the last couple of days, actually, we've got about 20,000 people visiting the wow. site. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, and we've got about uh, 300, um, you know, other companies or listings added within the last couple of days. Okay. You getting any complaints from landlords? Um, I don't know if they're necessarily complaints. I think they're people just uh, not happy in suggesting that I build the equivalent for tenants. Um, <laughs> okay. Okay. And my, my response to that is that's why we have these credit checks and we have all these other processes in place. Okay, you just anticipated my next question because this is like a two-sided coin, you know, like yep. this this is one of the eternal eternal battles. It's like lions and hyenas and itchy and yep. scratchy. It's like, <laughs> you know, landlords and tenants. I mean, it's just going on going on forever. And I know there are probably some landlords who are listening right now and saying, "Never mind rate the landlord. How about rate my tenant?" Because I've had some nightmare tenants. What do you think of that? Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. There are people who, you know, you hear for these professional tenants who, who do rip people off. And yeah. I, I completely respect that. And, you know, those, I think those are the nightmare stories that we, we hear about more than the actual kind of 90% of the regular people who may experience a leaky roof yeah. and you know, not a happy response to it. So, again, that's where, you know, I really point to the kind of process that a lot of landlords will ask people to do, like credit checks and background checks and references. As, as something that kind of gates that, where um, tenants never had that. Yeah, right. Speaking of Drew Minns, he's the founder of the Good Neighbor website that allows reviewers to rate their landlords. So, you know, you raise a good point there that, you know, for people who may be saying, well, wait a sec, what about rate my tenant? So you're saying that when a landlord is looking at prospective tenants, they have they have the right to ask for lots of personal information, right? They can ask for a credit background check. So there's lots of ways for the landlord can find out information and background about the tenant. Exactly. Right. Yeah, but there's just there's nothing available out there for um, for a you know a landlord themselves who who yeah. in respectively respectively is running a business. Okay. So, so what what kind of information can a landlord typically ask a prospective tenant? Yeah. So at least here in Ontario, um, I it's run the gamut from being asked for pay stubs of like the last six months, for example, um, running a credit check. Um, even my T4, I've had someone ask for that, uh, background checks in general, letters of employment. So I've had to ask, you know, bosses to write me letters to say that I'm a good person <laughs> and right. just otherwise references. Okay. So. What kind of information are people posting on the good neighbor website now? Like when you scroll through some of the posts yeah. on there, what kind of stories or information or details are people sharing about, about their landlords on there? Some of them, I mean, you're right. Some of them are negative experiences that someone may have had with a landlord. Some of them are saying, like, you know, this person would just walk into my apartment without letting me know. But for the majority of them, a lot of people are actually sharing a lot of great information about either the landlord or the apartment themselves and saying it's a great neighborhood. Um, The landlord was wonderful and they brought me uh, gifts at the holidays. So the hope is, is, you know, it's always going to be 50-50 and it's all about the context ultimately. Right. So it's not just a forum where people can just go on and gripe and complain and post negative stuff. Like there's a lot of positive reviews for landlords on there as well. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely about 50 yeah. 50 now. Okay. Yeah. Is, is there a charge for it or people can people use it for free? 
Absolutely free. So absolutely the free. time, yeah, for the time being, we have no plans to charge anything. So absolutely free for everybody. And it's, again, North America wide. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the showdown now between Facebook and the government of Australia. Oh, this has been a big fight, the thunder down under here. It started with a draft law in Australia requiring Facebook and Google to negotiate payment agreements with news organizations if they allow users to share news content on their platforms. Well, Facebook did not like that one bit. They imposed a week-long news blackout in Australia. News outlets were effectively banned from Facebook. Now the developing news on this story. Facebook and the Australian government have reached an agreement on this now. The news is back on Facebook down under. Have a listen to this. This is the Australian treasurer, Josh Frydenberg. Well, Facebook has refriended Australia. And Australian news will be restored to the Facebook platform. And Facebook has committed to entering into good faith negotiations with Australian news media businesses. Okay, this has been a fascinating standoff here between the social media giant and the government of Australia. Governments around the world watching this because other governments on the globe considering similar laws, including right here in Canada. Let's discuss now with my guest, Sarah Morrison. She is a data writer at Vox.com and Recode, and she's done some great work on this, and I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi, Sarah. Uh, Hi, thank you. Thanks a lot for coming on. I think you've done a great job covering this story, and I encourage people to check your stuff out on it. They follow me on Twitter. You'll see see the links there. How did this all this begin? Because it seemed like uh, Google was willing to play ball with the uh, Australian government when all this started, but Facebook not so much. How did this all start? Um, Well, it goes back a little while. Um, Australia has like an antitrust competitive commission that was looking into uh, the market power that you know Google and Facebook have I've been doing that for a while. One of the recommendations was was this law, and when they first sort of came out with that recommendation, Google and Facebook both said we're going to take our services away from Australia if you pass it. Obviously, Google changed its mind. They announced that they had agreed, uh, made some agreements with a couple uh, Australia's major news corporations. Uh, Facebook responded, as we said last week, by taking them all away, and now it looks like uh, Facebook with some, I guess, concessions from the Australian government is uh, coming around and making those deals now as well. And the news is back on Facebook. Right. Now, it's really interesting to watch this unfold. I know we're, we're officials in Canada here watching this very closely, especially. Uh, was the argument that uh, Facebook and Google were just profiting off of uh, news content that was generated by other news, news outlets and, and news, uh, the news uh, journalism organizations just getting shortchanged here? Um, I, I think it's a couple things. It's, you know, Facebook and Google, obviously, very powerful. They have a lot of money. Journalism, uh, less powerful, less money. Uh, it's sort of been decimated by the Internet, not just, you know, Facebook and Google. Uh, Facebook and Google also have a massive ad industry uh, that I think possibly takes a lot of money away from some other parties. So, um, and a lot of control over that. And so this was a way to maybe compensate news organizations for... Right some of the income and revenue that they've lost. Um, I don't know that like links, like how much money, uh, you know, Google and Facebook may have gained because they have that content or how much news organizations have lost. That's something that experts, you know, have said that 
they don't agree with the law because of. But uh, again, I guess I think the heart of it is trying to give news organizations more power and give them some money that they've lost so that they don't all fold. This escalated really quickly with Facebook ban- effectively banning news content in Australia here in the protest over this uh, proposed government law there. Um, what was the reaction to that? Did most people look at Facebook and say, oh, you know, this is just another b- big evil corporation doing, another- doing more terrible things? Or, or do you think Facebook maybe had a, a valid argument in some ways? Um, you know, again, I think some people think uh, that it does have a valid argument, but Facebook sort of never looked on all that kindly by most people these days. And the way it went about protesting by just suddenly cutting everything off and a lot of non-news sites and links got caught in that ban, like health organizations, government sites, weather sites, you know, Australia's summer there. Uh, They're getting the vaccine. You know, it looks very punitive. Um, And so I think generally, not all uniformly, but generally, the response, and I think from a lot of Australians as well, was uh, you're bullying us and we yeah. won't let you. Yeah, it's interesting to see Australia take the lead on this. Do you think um, Rupert Murdoch played any kind of role there, very powerful media mogul in, in Australia? Do you think that that played any kind of outsized influence on Australia's government, the Australian government's decision here to take on Facebook and Google? That, that seems to be the consensus. I mean, I can't yeah. read anybody's mind, but like, yeah. you know, he has his News Corp is one of the most powerful or biggest media organizations in that country. Um, and he's been very vocal about wanting to be paid <laughs> by these companies. And now he will be. So you have right. to think, yeah, it went his way and uh, he might have had something to do with that. Sure. Yeah. Speaking to uh, tech writer Sarah Morrison from Vox.com, uh, so now we see the, the breaking news on this today, Sarah, that Facebook and Australia have come to an agreement. So what happened here? Did the government back down on this at all, or did, did Facebook back down? Or who, who won here? I think both parties are, are, are saying that they did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it, it looks like, you know, the... There's a couple amendments made to the law uh, that Facebook likes. Uh, it basically says that they can make, if they make enough agreements uh, with, you know, news corporate companies, they won't be subject to the law or, and that they have enough, like, more time to sort of try to make those agreements uh, before that law is enforced against them, which for them, I think, is enough. So right. Uh, right. the funny thing is, you know, they, they've said, you know, we, this is an agreement. We've come to an agreement. We've reached a deal, whatever. They've now actually made a deal with uh, Seven West in Australia, which is one of the biggest uh, media companies there, aside from Murdoch's, uh, which is basically exactly what Google did uh, last week. So you can sort of, (laughs) uh, who who won here, I'm not sure, but a lot of people think the small companies that still have no leverage uh, probably lost. Still. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I, I think the Australian government has, has certainly made a, a bit of a concession here in, in this standoff with, with Facebook. But at the end of the day, Facebook is still going to be paying money uh, to media yeah. companies, just like Google will be paying money to Australian media and journalism companies in order to share the links for their for their uh, content, right? So, I mean, at the uh, it sounds like it's kind of a win Certainly for the big media companies, maybe the smaller ones. Will the smaller ones now have a tough time negotiating with these big social media companies trying to get money out of them? Um, I mean, I think that is what remains to be seen. The law was yeah. supposed to give these companies an incentive to 
make agreements. Uh, you know, usually small companies have a sort of a take it or leave it kind of thing. Um, and I have a sense that they still they still will. So, okay. Okay. again, I don't I can't predict the future, but that's the sense I kind of get. Okay, last question for you, Sarah. A lot of other countries around the world watching this very closely, certainly here in Canada, we have a federal government here that has talked about maybe doing something similar. Do you think the way this has worked out in Australia with these agreements now being put in place between Facebook, Google, and big media companies, do you think other countries will now follow suit and do something similar to what Australia did? Yeah, I think countries, you know, who can, laws like let them make a law like this, probably would sort of depends maybe how much power or influence facebook and google have there uh because i'm sure they they'd prefer there not being a law like that but we'll see i think i think this only makes them more motivated and makes the the chances better that that will happen yes okay it's fascinating situation you've done a great job on it thank you very much for coming on today thanks for having me